Hello and welcome to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. In this second season of the show, host Jordan Guth is joined by a new guest each episode who knows something about hi-fi that Jordan doesn't. And who knows, while he's learning about all of this, you might learn something too. So with no further ado, here's Jordan and this week's guest. Hello and welcome to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. Today we have Dr. Jack Oakley-Brown with us. Uh, Jack is the VP of Technology at KEF, where he leads the engineering on some of the most well-regarded speakers in the hi-fi industry. Uh, welcome, Jack. Thanks, Jordan. Nice to be here. To get started, um, you have a very deep passion for speaker design and hi-fi in general. I'm, I'm curious where or how you discovered hi-fi and developed that initial interest in in speakers and hi-fi? Well, that's a great question, but I don't know if I can 100% answer because <laughs> it's just always been fascinating to me. Um, you know, when I was kind of at school, uh, I was into music. Um, I, I guess a lot of kids are. Well, a lot of people are. And, and you know, friends with a lot of uh, people who played instruments and were in bands. I mean, I was... I. I I played the piano, but that's not a kind of cool instrument to go and take on stage. So I was all kind of always kind of more interested in people who could play kind of guitars or sing or play drums and stuff like that. So yeah, I was really into uh, kind of the techie side, uh, helping them out with gigs or recording and things. And and slowly over time, that kind of developed into an interest in the equipment. And then I just became really sure I wanted to um, do something with speakers. Um, I find them just quite fascinating because they're, uh, you know, the very end of the chain, and they seem, in in almost some ways, kind of magical. That you know, they're very simple things from a kind of high level perspective. You just got a magnet, a coil of wire, something to glue that coil to, and it, it can like sound like a human voice. It can make a beautiful sound, you know, wonderful music. And yeah, I, I still do find that there's a sense of magic in, in what a loudspeaker does. It, it's pretty incredible when you think about it. Like it's not overly complex in principle, um, but there's quite a lot of complexity that goes into designing a speaker. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I, I remember actually quite vividly, even at school, I, maybe this was it. I, we had a, a physics lesson where we made a speaker and I don't think it was like on the curriculum or anything. It was just like the physics teacher who was interested in that, but literally, you know, coil a wire, make a cone of paper from, you know, just like printer paper and take one of those yeah. horseshoe magnets you have lying around at school and you can make a little speaker. And yeah, I mean, it's not hi-fi, but it still is amazing to suddenly hear uh, like a human voice or a, a song coming out of something so simple. It, it's also one of those things which, um, you know, still is at the heart of it that same primitive physics going on. But the you know the way that we, as an industry, have taken that and refined it now uh, is is quite an amazing journey. You know, it's kind of a hundred years of that concept being refined and refined and refined. So you started at KEF in roughly like two thousand two, two thousand three, somewhere around there. I. I my first point where I put my foot in the door, <laughs> yeah. it, it was in 2002 as an intern, yeah. um, but full time, it was from 2004. So from 2004 till now, it's almost 20 years, which is wild to think of. Mm. Um, over 20 years, there has been a lot of innovation and, and your name is literally on the pants for a lot of these things. Is there a particular technology that you can think of that 
that you're like most proud of? Yeah, it's quite tricky as an engineer because especially with loudspeakers, although actually it's probably the same whatever you design, but the the choices you make as you go along the kind of design journey are all, you know, you don't get too many where they're really, really clear cut, where it's, you know, very, very clear, oh, you should do A and not B. Quite often you're yeah. you're making a kind of, a balance of, of decisions to get the least compromises. So uh, that's true in technology development as well. So if you come up with a brand new tech, there's often a downside as well as an advantage. Uh, so it could be, you know, limitations because of space or size or cost that mean your invention's great for something but won't apply to everything. So I think in most cases, you know, you have a technology um, it's very rare that you go, well, that's done. I'm never going to look at that for another 20 years. <laughs> you're, you're kind of continually refining it and revisiting it and going back. So from that perspective, it's a bit hard to say, oh, that was the one. <laughs> but yeah. I think there is something which is almost like a happy accident, which I am very proud of, um, which is the Tangerine Waveguide, because it was a something I worked on with my colleague, Mark Dodd. And we, we designed... F- phase plugs for compression drivers for um, other applications like Pro Audio. And and the design for the Tangerine Waveguide kind of came out of the same ideas as uh, as that work. And we weren't too too much concentrating on what it looked like, but having done the design work and, and you know, done the simulations and then seeing the real thing, it's got this such a distinctive look, which yeah. has become a bit of an icon for KEF. So that's one that I'm definitely you know, really proud to have been involved with the design of. And the Tangerine Waveguides, those are the pieces that extend out of the tweeter section of yeah. a UniQ driver. And yeah, that's um, right. wh- what does it do? <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes the tweeter a little bit louder is the first thing it does. Okay. Uh, and it's a really simple physical effect that if you, you know, the tweeter is just a membrane moving backwards and forwards, pushing air. And the amount of sound you get out of it depends on then, you know, a lot of factors about the air that's in front of it. But one of them is, you know, how hard is it to move the air? And what you can do for very high frequencies is you add something which we call compression, which basically means you cover some of the dome up. So the air can only get out from yeah. certain positions and you can get an efficiency boost that way. So that's what it's doing. It covers around about half the area of the of the dome and then therefore the 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 air that's in those channels is moving a bit quicker and you get more efficiency Ah, okay it's only working at very high frequencies but it it's really nice because it gives you a bit of a boost at the top end it tailors the directivity a little bit up there and and previously we'd always had problems with people i don't know it's like um uh, some kind of tractor beam draws in people's fingers into tweeters, especially yeah. in shows. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and we wanted a, a grill to protect the tweeter. Um, and we'd done one, I think, if you look at the reference series around about 2000, it had a grill. Um, and it's always hard to get a grill so that it doesn't mess up the response. Um, and, and so it was great to do something where we we're adding benefits to the acoustics and at the same time protecting the tweeter. So yeah, that, that's where it came from. All sorts of different angles. That's interesting. Cause like now even just thinking about it, uh, when I think about the blades, which are the coolest looking speakers, I, I, I adore <laughs> them, uh, or the, the LS fifties or any of the speakers really from Kef, there's not a whole lot of grills that actually go on top. No, so yeah, yeah. 
does the tangerine waveguide like is it kid proof has your son oh, yeah, yeah. The, tried to the tangerine waveguide <laughs> is kid proof 100% i mean <laughs> that's awesome you, I, you'd have to go some to dent the tweeter with the tangerine waveguide on of course you could you'd have to like get a pencil yeah and of course it but yeah, it stops yeah, fingers yeah. right it stops fingers and yeah. i i think without Without the Tangerine Wave guy, we wouldn't have been brave as a company like this and said, right, no grills. Because, yeah, you oh, do. Oh, that's awesome. It's, I, I tell you, you know, nothing more depressing than, you know, when I first started at KEF, worked really hard on designing a driver or something, and you finally get it into the shops and you go and see it and you see, oh, the, somebody's come in here and pushed all the domes in. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, man. Yeah, that's disheartening for sure. Now, I noticed that, you or Kef actually has this collaboration with Lotus now. Yeah. Which is awesome. Looks incredible. Um, but then also to what you were saying about the Tangerine Waveguide acting as kind of a, a guard for the tweeter a little bit. Um, in car audio, mm. usually you do see grills on top of things so that the speakers, maybe not so that they're not as prominent, but so that they're protected when you're getting in and out of cars and stuff like that. But in the Lotus, they are very... Um, <laughs> like striking like it looks really cool and there is no grills it is literally that tangerine wave um, by the looks of it yeah again i think it's brave i i mean i can't claim any credit for the 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 visual design the industrial design um but no doubt like i think the lotus guys took inspiration from what they saw in our products which is that you know we really made an effort in the last 20 years to make the drivers look great yeah. Um, so that, you know, you can have them without grills. And, and that's great for us acoustically because grills are hard to get working. Um, I haven't seen any other car, uh, you know, without, a, you know, a grill. And there is still a small grill on the Lotus, I should say. But having is a tangerine, okay. yeah, it, it protects the mid-range. But, yeah, they, they wanted to elevate kind of their car audio mounting and finishing of the driver up to the kind of levels that we do it on the consumer products and and i must admit you know in some of the the collaborative meetings we we kind of went oh are you sure about this because you know a car is <laughs> a bit of a different environment from your your living room but yeah i i think the the outcome's great and and it is um pretty well protected with the tangerine there and and you still have a covering over the mid-range so yeah, yeah. a good balance i, I think well, and visually looks amazing, and I'm sure it sounds amazing. Um, is developing audio for cars significantly different than developing it for like a loudspeaker? Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite different um, from qu- quite a few different perspectives. Um, I mean, I guess the one thing that isn't any different is the physics of what's going on. You know, with with hi-fi, Uniq is something that which is really close to our hearts, and we've been developing and perfecting for a long time, and. What that is, for people who might not know, is that normally in a high-quality speaker, you need to use several different drivers. So the driver is the bit that actually make the sound. Uh, yeah. We hear a really, really wide spectrum of audio from bass to mid to high. And you can't design a good driver that will cover that whole bandwidth. So we split it up and we do little drivers for different jobs. A tweeter for high frequencies, mid-range driver for the vocal region, bass driver for deep bass. Um, and the challenge is, you know, how do you put all of those different, uh, the output of all those different drivers back together in a way that makes sense? So how do you put it back together so that it sounds like one thing, not sound coming from different things? And Uniq is our answer to that, which is we 
we basically take the tweeter and we put it right in the middle of the mid-range driver. So you have a single hmm. unit that's got both drivers in and our target, you know, in terms of engineering is we want to make that look like it's just one driver, even though it's really two <laughs> kind yeah. of thing. And we've been working on that for a long time and it's hard. It's hard to get right. And we've, you know, the first attempts were okay. Second attempts better. And we're up to kind of generation 12 now. We, I think we're getting pretty good at it. But for the same reasons, you know, you want the same thing in a car. You don't want to have this impression that sounds coming from different places in a car. And in, in some ways, a car is even more extreme because, you know, if we're designing a speaker, we can choose pretty freely where we're going to put everything. But in a car, yeah. you haven't got that many places you can put things. And you're competing. You're competing with people who are designing the door handles, the window openers. Ah. And, and so UniQ in a car makes total, total sense. And so we were, you know, we were really, really excited uh, about that. And so fundamentally, the acoustics doesn't change. But now we, you know, everything else changes. So you know, in a car, we have much bigger temperature variation than at a home. You know, robustness is more important. Um, you, you have to be much more weatherproof if somebody's going to leave the window down or something like that. And yeah. and the collaboration of you know trying to get things at the right size in the right place in the cabin and working with other teams is yeah different very different but really really fun challenge for us and um the the result is actually very very good i'm very happy with that so yeah it's been a, a great experience now does the learnings from that influence the design of the loudspeakers like are you looking at stuff and you're like oh i could actually use this and make it applicable in loudspeaker design in some ways, yes, yes, because as I said, some of these aspects that we don't normally have to worry too much about are very, very important for the automotive industry. And and so we have categories of speakers that do go outside, that do get exposed to weather. Uh, and so some of the learnings from us, you know, being involved in the automotive industry are kind of going to help us a little bit with that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, so it's been mm. interesting on both sides. Now, uh, another piece that I'm thinking of here is, uh, in a lot of the newer Kef products, I'm seeing uh, Meta. So yeah, the, yeah. the kind of Meta material and all that. Um, I, I guess, one, can you describe what Meta material is? And two, is that applicable in the car stuff as well? Or how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Meta material has been exciting for us. Um, it was one of those ones that started and we kind of thought, I don't know if this is going to go anywhere <laughs> because it, it's, it's um, meta materials as a concept have been around universities and research departments for quite a long time. But I think you don't see too many products that you can go out and buy that have them in yet. I do think that will change. Yeah. Um, but the idea is that in a lot of industries, um, we're relying on materials that, just happen to exist and you know so you, you take a particular thing that you might want to do in audio is absorb sound and you think yeah. how that's normally done well you go and buy um you know wadding of some kind you might buy curtains and you might you know you might have say uh wool in an absorber or pu foam something like that so the characteristics that you yeah. end up with in an absorber or an acoustic treatment they're heavily dependent on the material properties of what you've been able to make it from. Um, and that's quite limiting. Um, you know, it means that, you know, if you 
want to push the boundary and get more absorption in a given amount of space, you, you can't really do it. Your hands end up being tied because you can only get materials that actually are out there and are available. Yeah. And the idea of a metamaterial kind of turns that idea completely around and says, well, what if we could make something completely synthesized? What you know properties would we like to have? And then work backwards from there, saying, "Well, what what geometry would it need to have?" And it, you know, for absorption, it's interesting to think: well, actually, what's happening there? Why do those materials absorb sound? And um, ultimately, it's because there's lots and lots of little pores in them. So, if you take you know a kind of wool, mm. something like that, yeah. the reason it absorbs sound is because the sound wave, as it's propagating through it, the air particles are having to move through little passages and little holes. So you get viscosity ah, in there and you get energy dissipation. So, you know, in principle, if you make something, you print it in, in plastic or you mold it in metal and you put in little holes, then that can absorb sound too. And then the next step is to say, well, okay, now I could change the shape, shape and the size of those holes and I can, how, you know, what size and shape should they be to get the best possible absorption? Yeah. And if you do that, you, that's actually making it what we would call a metamaterial. So it's something which goes beyond what normal materials can do. So it, as I say, it's not just acoustics. You get people looking into this for kind of refracting light or all sorts of different applications. Um, but, you know, being acousticians, one of our team was really hot on this topic and really interested in some work that was being done uh, in Hong Kong. So we right. went and visited uh, the team there and had a kind of really great kind of collaboration session and came away with this idea of saying, well, maybe we could take their tech and adapt it to absorb the sound from the back of a tweeter. And, and that's what we did with the LS50 Meta. We, you know, we had to take kind of uh, the ideas they have, which are normally applied to uh, controlling noise in industrial applications and find a way to adapt that and fit it in a tweeter. And a tweet is a great first step because it's an area where the wave that comes off the back of the tweeter it's you know it's got just as much intensity as the sound that's coming off towards the listener and you've got to do something with it and and there's various different ways that people have tried to uh, dissipate it absorb it so in a way that doesn't affect what the listener's going to hear. And and so you know it was an obvious place for us to try putting a meta material and and see what we could do. Um, and in the end, we ended up with a really, really highly optimized arrangement. So we can absorb way, way more of that sound coming off the back of the tweeter than you normally can. So, you know, I, normally at the low end of the tweeter, it's quite hard. You can only absorb a, a small fraction of it. But we're absorbing like 99% yeah. of the sound that's coming off the back. And, and huh. now we were kind of really pleased with the engineering and the science behind that. But still a little bit unsure of well, what does that mean when you actually listen to it? Yeah. Um, but that's been a great, uh, a great eye opener as well. Like all the products where we've applied this tech, we just you know are getting a level of performance that we you know were not really expecting. And you know, I don't know if you've experienced any of them, but it's become a mainstay technology for us uh, in in a lot of our products. Yeah, I believe I heard the LS50 Meta. Yeah, I believe I heard that a couple of years ago. And then I, I think the amount of time between hearing the LS50 when they were the 50th anniversary mm. edition back in whatever it was, 2015 or 2016 to like that. I mean, 
all the Kev stuff sounds uh, really nice to me. It just sounds, um, I don't even know how to explain it, like inviting. But um, yeah, I don't know if I could say that I could distinctly hear the difference, but the properties behind it make a lot of sense. And I'm sure if you're like you're set up in a uh, in a space where you have them side by side, there's there's probably uh, significant differences in, in terms of um, the, the sound that's being reproduced and the, the stuff that you're hearing and not hearing. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm, p- I'm putting you on the spot here, Jordan, anyway. So. <laughs> 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 and and even, even so, I mean, if you take LS50 and LS50 Meta, there, there were a lot of things that we tweaked to improve. So, you know, it's, it's part of the tech story. It's one of the ingredients that goes into, you know, our speakers now to make them sound as, as good as we can make them. Uh, but it is a really exciting one and uh, it'll be, you know, around for a, bit, a fair bit, I think, given what it does. Awesome. So with that, uh, let's go ahead and take a quick break to listen to some music uh, and we'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back from the break. Now we were talking about metamaterials and how the LS50, it sounds like, was the, the first product to have the metamaterial. Um, but metamaterial is now in the blades as well, in the higher end uh, products. Is mm, that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. We did that last year. That's right. And the blades are, I'm going to say, the the speaker that kind of opened my eyes to what hi-fi was. And... Um, Kind of going back to the first time that I was at CAF in 2015 or so, we were there and in your listening room slash, I think it's like the museum there, um, there was the the blades set up and that first listening experience, there was a couple things that stood out. Uh, one of them was there was bass that I felt in my body, uh, but it did not vibrate. And I think... One of the coolest demos that I've ever seen with speakers, even to this day, was Johan Korg balancing a coin on the blade and then playing. uh, I think he played Radar Love for Me uh, or something like that. And there was like bass again, like I was feeling it through my body, but I wasn't um, it wasn't like vibrating or shaking or anything like that. Um, actually just a tangent. How does that work? Is that, that's, <laughs> I, I seem to remember that's the, the force canceling yeah, base drivers. And that's a classic demo. That's a classic <laughs> demo. And, it was so cool. Johan is such a good guy to have demo speakers to anyway. And his love of music yeah. is amazing. Is Yeah. And, but anyway, coming back to your question, the, we intentionally wanted to make the blade so it had very, very low cabinet vibration. And, and you know, for obvious reasons, we spent literally hours pouring over drivers and making them really as perfect as we can. If you then bolt them into a cabinet which isn't carefully designed, then that those drivers will shake. They will shake the cabinet and you can hear 
you know, some frequencies, just as much sound coming from the walls of the cabinet as you, as you would get from the drivers. So, you know, it's really important if you want to have a really high quality speaker to get that cabinet generated sound down. So that from day one was one of the things on Blade. And, and force cancelling is, is something that's in, Ke- in Kef's history as well. So there was a loudspeaker uh, called the Reference 1042. Uh, I think it was the early 80s or the end of the 70s, around then, that had internally mounted bass drivers, one firing up, one firing down with a rod connecting them. And that must have been one of the very, very first. You know, uh, my audio history knowledge is pretty good, maybe not 100%, but I think, you know, possibly the first. And that idea came from the technical director of KEF, Laurie Finchin at the time. Um, and I always wanted to sit down and ask him where it came from, the idea. But it's a beautiful, a beautiful concept because the, the, you know, the motor of the driver is pushing the cone. And, you know, you can open a, a high school physics textbook and it says we, every action has an opposite action, uh, uh, opposite reaction. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. as it's pushing the cone, there's the same force pushing back on the motor. And when you bolt the driver into the cabinet, that force is shaking the cabinet. But if you put two identical drivers back to back, then those forces are equal in opposite directions to each other and they cancel out. And and it's it's just one of those arrangements which works beautifully and it kind of defies belief because when you see a system that's only got force cancelled LF, you put your hand on the speaker or, as Johan did, you balance a coin and it's totally, totally still. Uh, yet the drivers can be whipping around, producing you know fantastic deep bass, and that, that cabinet just stays still. So yeah, I mean from day one we wanted the blade to have that tech, and it's part of the kind of recipe for blade that makes blade quite unique. Um, so we we call that single apparent source. So I spoke okay. a, a bit about UniQ before. Of, you know, how do we put back the sound? You know, from all these different drivers in a way that makes sense. And and UniQ is something that um, you know was kicked off in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and that kind of does a really, really great job for mid and high frequencies. But it never, you know, never really looked at what you do about the bass. And Blade, the whole idea of Blade is to take the concept even further so that it's the whole spectrum. So you have your tweeter, and if you think about it, surrounding the tweeter is the mid-range cone. And then yeah. surrounding the mid-range cone in Blade, you've got four bass drivers in this array. So, you know, they're not a single driver, but because they're so close to the mid-range and because of where we cross them over, everything now looks like it's just coming from a point in space just behind the UniQ driver. And one of the parts of the recipe is that we have to get those bass drivers quite close to the UniQ. And if we were to put the drivers on the front of the box, the box would have to be a lot wider. And, you know, we'd also get a lot of diffraction off them. So diffraction is an effect where sound passing over a surface reaches a sudden change in direction, an edge or a barrier, it'll scatter. So if we had the bass drivers on the front, we'd get scattering of the mid-range sound off those bass drivers. So the beauty of blade is it solves kind of a few problems at the same time you put the bass drivers on the sides in opposing pairs and now the front baffle can be narrow which gives a nice wide directivity in in the lower mid you get a totally smooth baffle that the uniq can be just optimally mounted in and then you also get these opposing pairs that give you force cancelling in the lf 
So it's it's just this recipe which works in harmony for all these different perspectives. And I mean, Blade was a project that um, I worked on. You know, when it when it first came in, you know, into Kef as a concept, um, actually Mark Dodd, like my colleague who I mentioned earlier, he was the one who yeah. said, "Look, we should do something like this." Um, but yeah, for a long period of time, it was just me and Mark plugging away, you know, trying to get all the bits and pieces together so that we could make a prototype, show this was a good idea. And, and, and you know, it slowly got traction, but it didn't get traction overnight. It was something we plugged, plugged and plugged and plugged away at. Um, but yeah, it's something that's really important for me personally, but I think it's been really important for, for Kef as a company as well. For sure. And when it comes to the blade, it sounds like the technology is what uh, defined the the design of it. It's that the age old thing, which is uh, form follows function. And it sounds like the blade is exactly that. But it also just looks super cool. So did you design like this box with these force canceling drivers and all this? And then the industrial designers are like, we know what we're going to yeah. do. Or like, <laughs> like, how did that come about? No, I mean, it's 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 an interesting question. I mean, if you go to different products in our portfolio, you, you, you know, we have to weight the importance of different things differently. Um, like we talked about car audio earlier, right? We could yeah. insist to Lotus, you got to have the cars in the windscreen, but some, somebody won't be able to see where they're going, right? So different products need yeah. different amounts of emphasis put on different aspects according to like, who are they for? Who's going who's gonna to buy them? What are they looking for? So if you take something like a, a blade, or a muon or a reference series. Those right. are high performance speakers. Their main reason for being is to give you exceptional sound. So, you know, with, with the products like that, you know, we go to the designer with pretty strict instructions for them. And and okay. to be honest, that makes things not always more difficult for them in a way. I, I think this is where you see the difference between a good designer and a great designer. Um, you know, someone who can take all of those restrictions that we've given them and come back with the shape of blade. Well, for me, that's phenomenal because I tell you what, our prototypes didn't look as good as that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so no, it's, it's definitely really important for us. We get this harmony between acoustics and design because, you know, it, it's about sound. It is about sound. But these things sit in people's rooms. We expect them to look at them and appreciate them for years. They have to look great. Right. So, yeah, it's uh, central to our ethos that design is so important. I mean, like uh, when I think about the Kef Blades, they're, they're an aspirational product, right? Like um, for me personally, like, I don't think I will maybe, maybe later on in my life, I'll, I'll either uh, win the lottery or, or kind of figure something out to, to be able to afford a set. But even just kind of seeing them and experiencing them, it makes me interested in the Kef lineup as a whole. Mm. And it's kind of like something to aspire to. Um, so when you have the blade come out and you design the blade, does that influence the next products, kind of that, that downstream products or the more affordable products as well? Mm, yeah, it does very much. I mean, it's, um, I think in, in any kind of company or engineering department, you need a kind of very clear vision of what you're trying to do. And give, being given the freedom to go and make a, a flagship, which is kind of no holes barred to an extent, 
could bring in new technology is a really great way of setting a vision. This is what we're aiming for. Um, and there's then lots of ripple from that in the way that people view the company. They say, oh, these guys really know what they're doing. And they maybe didn't even think about KEF before, but suddenly they think, oh, if they can do that, maybe I'll look at the ones that are a bit more affordable. Um, it's also really, really important for technology in sometimes in a very direct way. I don't think with, you know, if we didn't have Blade, we probably would have never developed the Tangerine Waveguide, for example. And, and, oh, interesting. and tech like that is not exclusive. It's something that's the beauty of the design there is that it's, it's a geometry that we can replicate. Uh, of course, there are other things in Blade which cost a lot of money to do and we can't trickle it down. But we can still think about, you know, how do we get some element of that into more affordable products? Maybe not the same materials or quite the same way, but why, you know, what were we trying to do, you know, say with force cancelling and, and how do we get the cabinet to be really quiet in a more affordable way? And, and then you get the result of that, things like the bracing tech that came through on LS50, you know, where, where we're able to get the, the sound from the cabinet down, okay, maybe not quite as far as if we were using force cancelling, but a lot quieter than a normal loudspeaker so yeah it, i i think it's very 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 important you know for us as well as as the outside world and how we view ourselves interesting and when i think about your lineup right now um i'm seeing the muon is still kind of at the the top of the lineup uh towards the the entry level there is the ls50 the ls50 wireless uh as well as uh the ls60 which is kind of like I'm going to call it a, a mini, mini blade. So like <laughs> smaller than the blade too, but a lot of the same tech, yeah, uh, but exactly. more of that, yeah. that LS design philosophy. Um, you have a smaller series, the LSX, yep. which are kind of like the mini LS fifties. Um, is there, is there room for something even below that? Oh, it's um, a good question. I mean, LS, um, the LS family, like the uh, active wireless products, that that's an interesting category because, again, the tech techie perspective or an engineer perspective, I, I we wanted to do something like that for so long. You yeah. know, this, this kind of um, you know, active speakers are something which uh, the pro audio guys have been able to do for ages, and we've been, you know, designing passive speakers. In some senses, you could say, oh, you know, the passive speaker's day is past. I, I don't know if I 100% agree with that, but there's certainly elements that you can't do in a passive speaker that you can do with an active speaker and with DSP. So, yeah, we wanted to do them for ages. And and we, we did the LS50W first, which is kind of generation one version of the LS50. In a way, just it was the safest way for us as a company. Now we're, we're pretty big in our industry, but we're by no means a huge company. We, we have to be quite careful about what we develop. Um, yeah. And that gave us a clear indicator that people wanted this kind of, um, it's almost like straight to the music version of hi-fi, you know, I buy yeah. this and it sounds great when I get it out of the box. I don't have to worry about cables, piecing amplifier. a system yeah. together and figuring Yeah. 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 And, and I think doing it with LS50, which, at the point we did it, you know, everybody loved the LS, LS50. It got such a good, you know, reception that it felt like uh, an obvious thing to try. Uh, you know, it maybe would be in a completely different place if that hadn't gone well. If, if we'd have sold none of those, <laughs> we probably wouldn't have done it. But it's great to be where we are now, where we've got a little range of these 
these products and they all kind of can interoperate. You can, you know, use them off the same the same app and sync them up if you want. So yeah, it's like a little ecosystem. And we are um, trying to grow that. Um, it's it's challenging at the low end because the tech costs money, right? Uh, it's yeah. uh, especially the kind of connectivity uh, and some of the, the streaming tech and the DSP. So yeah, I'm not sure when you'll see it, but we'd love to do uh, kind of more, uh, more uh, kind of affordable entry level step into that range. And, and I guess the situation is similar at, at the top end because I think you know, LS60, you're getting up to already quite a lot of money for a lot of people. And at that point, I think most pe- people would think, well, should I get this or should I get a hi-fi system? And I think that would get yeah. even more of a, a question for a lot of customers when you go higher in price. And there's a beauty as well if you're into audio and the tech of, of a hi-fi that's got separate components that you can slowly change and upgrade as your kind of taste or your budget lets you do it. Um, so the, yeah, hopefully we can do more at either end. I'd, I'd love to do more uh, at the top end actually, because there's loads of potential in terms of the tech. Um, when you, when you have DSP amps, everything, everything in one box, it's, it's yeah, super exciting to play with. So reading between the lines there, um, an active version of the blades wouldn't be something out of the question. Not out of the question, not out of the question at all. But it's um, certainly something that, uh, you know, we have to be careful about doing um, because, you know, I, I, I think for myself, if, if, I'm, if I'm a customer who's got the budget for blade, um, yeah. you know, I've probably got my own, kind of dedicated hi-fi room maybe at that point i can kind of do what i want in yep. there there's a lot of appeal to being able to try out different amps try out different sources and things so we've got to be sure it's um something customers want yeah i know some yeah. customers oh, want it and sense. they want it really bad because i see it on the forums and i'd love to do it <laughs> but yeah we've we got to be sure it's you know makes sense um that, that's super exciting for me especially uh kind of how you're talking about developing both the the lower end and the high end um Simply because one, I'm probably in the category of purchasing more towards the the entry level of hi-fi. Um, I actually have a pair of Kef eggs in my living room right now, um, partly because they my the living room space isn't that big and it fills the space, uh, but also partly because my wife actually likes the look of them, so they're allowed to be there. But I am going to tr- try and upgrade her to like an LSX or something like that. But it's also cool to just kind of think about what's coming next for the the kind of ultra high end, the um, the the next blade or the next mm. muon or whatever mm. it may be. I, I think that's really cool. I, I um, thought you're going to press me then, Jordan. Put the thumb screws on me and try and torture it out of me. Oh, that's for that's for after we get offline, where <laughs> okay. I can start really nailing down. Um, I guess I, this kind of leads me to a question that's uh, maybe a bit more personal, which is. In your own setup, what does your own kind of listening room setup look like? Or or do you have a listening room? Is, is music, uh, I'm assuming music is throughout the home and, and all of that, but um, how do you enjoy music on a daily basis? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I, I uh, definitely won't be your typical, you know, kind of hi-fi user though, because the trouble I've got is that nothing can possibly last if I bring it home because we're, we're constantly <laughs> working on new things. So, you know, if, if I want to listen to uh, the best possible reproduction at home, I mean, forget it. 
they got to go to the office, yeah. go to our listening room, and yeah, so on. So I wouldn't say I've given up on on home audio. I mean, sounded like an intro to that, didn't it? But no, I've got like yeah. quite a modest system at the moment. Although I've just finished doing my kind of. 90% finished my kind of home office. So my on my brain right now is, okay, what am I going to have in this room? And I haven't quite decided Ooh. yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, downstairs in, in the kind of living room, I've got uh, actually it's a prototype pair of LS50 Metas that I've had for quite a long time now. Um, probably Ooh. about time I bought something else back um, and, and switched them out. Um, but I mean, I, I've got a young family as well. So music's important for us around the home as as you said but it's not always the kind of music i want to listen to i put on something and then immediately my son comes in and asks me to put on a ninjago songs or something like that so yeah you know the ninjago soundtrack (laughs) i've heard it well many many times yeah so you know i've got uh, and and we've got some ci and kind of like the the family area which is great for that kind of thing and actually that's one thing the ci is custom install yeah, so some ceiling speakers around the kitchen and the dining room. Which, okay. Yeah, and actually having kind of music as part of your everyday life um, is brilliant. And and it's it gives you kind of different kind of enjoyment to the audiophile. I, you know, very solitary experience of sitting down and choosing an, an LP to play the whole way through. Just, you know, music as part of a kind of soundtrack to your family life is 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 really important for me. And, and and I think that's as well where tech is really great at, um, you know, giving you the ability for everyone in your household to easily play stuff on a system, you know, especially, you know, if you're using like um, Apple AirPlay or Google Cast, yeah. it's just as easy for my wife or my kids to put on something or, you know, with um, kind of uh, Amazon Echo or, or the Google Home products, you can even tell them to put on the radio for you. And my kids do that all the time. Or annoyingly, they, they, they tell Google to turn down my things, which is, yeah, I got to find out. To that. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, I, it's hilarious. We're across the pond from each other, but I have the exact same experience in my house. Literally my, my son will between Ninjago and, uh, the star Wars, uh, soundtracks and stuff like that. And he knows how to use Siri. So he's like interacting with stuff and yeah, yeah, exactly the same. Um, <laughs> So the last question, and I try and ask this to everyone because um, what is the point of hi-fi if you're not listening to the things that you enjoy? So for yourself, for personal enjoyment, not the family stuff, not the Ninjago soundtrack, um, what are the kind of, the, what's the soundtrack to your life? What is the the music that you listen to purely out of enjoyment? Yeah, uh, it's, um, it's a good question. I, I, I segue slightly into something else, but then come back. I, I find yeah. that especially kind of doing a lot of demos to people and having people come into CAF uh, to listen to speakers and also with colleagues, it's a little bit of kind of nervousness, I think, about people putting on what they kind of just like listen to themselves because they think, oh, I'm you know going to look like an idiot if people don't like this music. I always kind of cringe at that yeah. because people, you know, like whatever music they like. And I, I, I think... There's too much snobbery in in kind of the industry, or there's certainly the audiophile part about oh, you shouldn't listen to that; it doesn't sound good. I always think, well, if you've got a great sounding system, it should sound great. Whatever you know, whatever you put on it should be the best you've ever heard. So anyway, but I mean, the thing I've been finding recently is that I've I'm kind of like time poor, right? So discovering new yeah. music has become more challenging for me. 
um, because you know I'm working a lot and at, at, at work with colleagues because you're kind of using music to do engineering you can't kind of just suddenly introduce a load of new music so we tend to use kind of a lot of things we've all heard before and I've been really finding radio as a great way to kind of discover music so I've kind of gone back a little bit to listening to more radio certainly when I'm like um, working in the evening or something like that um, so I've got some kind of you know favorite stations for that and then if I am choosing music it's music is something as well which is kind of like you have um, emotional connections with because of when you first heard things or you know you know yeah. where, who were you with when you listened to it so I've been kind of listening to quite a lot of the the, the music I was listening to kind of 10 years ago or, or so. So it, it's strange. I go through cycles where sometimes I just kind of go, you know, I don't really want to hear anything new. I want to go back to my kind of back, back catalogue of things. So, I mean, just this week I was listening to a bit of Boniver, um, some Foles stuff and uh, what else? I've so Actually, some Radiohead as well, which is actually relatively nice. common for me as well so yeah right now i've kind of been i guess where does that put me somewhere in the early 2000s my nostalgia at the moment but yeah it <laughs> ebbs and flows it ebbs and flows really so yeah oh, and like, awesome. like i say none of that stuff you'd say well that's great hi-fi demo material but it's something that i you know i love listening to it makes me think about where i was when i heard that who i was with and yeah that for me is what you know hi-fi is about more so than you know all those kind of hi-fi audio file recordings it's it's you know what do you enjoy what what makes you feel good it, it's so funny you say that like i i love radiohead by the way uh fantastic yeah. stuff uh and every time like people will ask me uh when we go to the companies like what what would you like to hear and i'm always like oh man like i'm not putting on heavy metal i'm just gonna ruin everyone's day but uh lawrence dickey actually let me play uh some slayer in his factory <laughs> Uh, the last over at England, which was awesome. It was the best speakers I've ever heard Slayer on. Um, but then to your point, like where you are when you listen to music, uh, Golden Earring. So I, I think I made you guys play that on the Kef, but that is a car song for me. That is every time I drive in a car, that is like the road trip song for me. So uh, maybe someday I'll get to listen to that on the uh, on the Kef system within the Lotus. I think that'd be uh, a really cool sounds one. Sounds like a good ambition to have. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Jack, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, uh, for spending some time with us. Uh, I'm super excited to, to kind of see what's next for Kef. Uh, I'll be pressing you after the show for when we're going to get some uh, some other products and all of that stuff. Um, yeah, thanks for uh, uh, thanks for joining us. It's a great pleasure, Jordan. Nice to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Take care, everyone.